Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Good afternoon to those in North America. Good evening to those of you who are joining us from Europe. And good morning to any intrepid souls in Asia who are up very early indeed. Welcome to all. My name is Margot Landman, Deputy Vice President for Programs at the National Committee on US-China Relations. And just before we get to the program, I would like to express our sorrow for the people in Henan and other parts of China that have seen such terrible flooding in recent days. As those of you who join us frequently know, Steve Orlands is usually the interviewer at national committee programs. Today, by contrast, he is the speaker and interviewee. We are very fortunate that Professor Jerome Cohen, renowned law professor, scholar, and activist, has agreed to moderate today's program. With that, Jerry, over to you. Thank you, uh, Margot. I hope I can be heard. Uh, having a chance to participate with you and Steve uh, is highly appropriate at this time as we reconsider the progress that has been made uh, since the 1979 normalization. Uh, I was in close touch with both of you at that time, and I'm glad that we're all still uh, making an effort to deal with what has now been almost universally recognized uh, as uh, the world's most important uh, political, diplomatic, uh, military, economic problem. Uh, in 60 years of watching China, I feel that uh, this is undoubtedly the most serious moment. Uh, some people predict it's likely to last five years. It could go much longer. Uh, the future is not clear uh, inevitably. But with many high hopes, the Biden administration has come into office and uh, we've seen some significant changes and some improvements in our China policy. Uh, and yet there are of course, uh, many understandable uh, disagreements, uh, impatience has been shown in many quarters. And we're here today to do a critique after six months uh, of uh, Biden in office, uh, what has been done, what should be done, what can we expect? Uh, there's nobody better qualified to hold forth on this than Steve Orleans. Uh, as a student, uh, as a scholar, as a young lawyer in the State Department helping to negotiate normalization of relations with China in the late 70s, as a business lawyer who worked in China among the very first in the period 79 to 81, and later, not much later, as a business person with a high responsibility based in Hong Kong for dealing not only with mainland China, but also with Taiwan. Uh, Steve had a superb background for finally uh, becoming the president of the National Committee on US-China Relations. He's done that for over a dozen years. He's had the closest contacts uh, Americans have with uh, Chinese leaders, scholars, intellectuals, and he keeps up a constant effort to promote constructive engagement despite the problems that have been created. Problems that I think, of course, have been created to varying extents on different problems by both sides. I'm eager to hear what Steve has to say. I'll make some brief comments afterward. And uh, I'd like then for us to take on uh, the comments of what is a very uh, well-informed audience. Steve, it's all yours. 
Uh, Jerry, thank you. Happy belated 95th, 91st birthday. Um, glad we got to celebrate it over Zoom. Hope to see you soon. Um, today, let me first make one thing clear, which is today I speak for myself, not the National Committee on US-China Relations. In fact, some of my board members, some of the committee membership hold different views than I do. So I am speaking for myself and please bear that in mind. As Jerry said, it's been about six months since inauguration and almost nine months since the election. And even before that, President Biden and his team had spent many years thinking about what our China policies should be. So today I want to address where we are. I want to propose some actions the administration should take now to craft a policy that benefits all Americans, especially working Americans. I'm not gonna spend time rehashing the litany of bad, sometimes reprehensible Chinese government decisions, policies and behaviors relating to its treatment of dissidents, people in Xinjiang and Hong Kong, its Taiwan policies or its unfair economic policies. I'm already on the record clearly and forcefully criticizing those policies and attributing blame to the Chinese government for the state of the relationship from far before the Trump era. But today, I wanna to talk about the other side of the equation, how US actions have also contributed to the dangerous deterioration of US-China relationship and how that affects us as a country and people. I believe that over the past four years, America's China policy has been a disaster for average Americans and for US-China relations and has often been based on fallacies rather than facts. The Biden administration needs to forcefully refute some of those foundational fictions such as China interfered in the 2020 elections. It didn't. Chinese pay the tariffs on imported goods. They don't. Or the bilateral trade deficit reflects the unfair trading relationship between China and the United States. It doesn't. These are only a few of the assertions that form the flawed foundation for our current policy that the Biden administration inherited and should address. I must admit, I believe President Biden would overturn President Trump's China policies. During the election campaign, I had heard a candidate Biden strike what I thought was an appropriate, confident tone when he said, the United States is better positioned than any nation in the world to own the 21st century. Don't tell me China's gonna own America. It's not possible. Instead of demonizing China, he called for America to strengthen itself by addressing domestic issues. He seemed committed to striking a more measured path, one that emphasized working together with China where possible to address global issues such as climate change and non-proliferation. However, since his election, President Biden's good instincts on China policy have been deflected. In the context of paying immediate attention to battling COVID, restoring domestic economic health and social tranquility, rebuilding our infrastructure and standing with allies and like-minded nations, the Biden administration has reversed too few of Trump's China policies. I understand that Biden needs all the capital he can get for his domestic agenda. And I realize that there is broad agreement on China policy between the two parties. Nevertheless, we should not let those constraints force us into international economic and security directions that are unsound. Looking back at history, parties and administrations 
that pursued enlightened domestic policies did not always do so with respect to foreign policy, particularly in Asia. As Jerry well remembers, because it's when we met, the same administration that championed civil rights sent my classmates to their deaths in Southeast Asia. The administration points out that sequencing policies in coordination with allies is critical. I agree, but leaving these policies in place punishes working families, promotes racial antagonism, and will sap resources from revitalizing the American economy. It's easy to criticize from the sidelines, so let me instead give you my positive agenda for US policy towards China that will strengthen ties and benefit American families. First, on the economic front, the administration should immediately revoke Trump's tariffs. China has already indicated it will end its reciprocal tariffs. America has already lost 300,000 jobs, and a family of four is still paying $2,300 annually in extra expenses as a result of those tariffs. With inflation potentially on the horizon, it is time to act. The ongoing delisting of Chinese companies from US stock exchange and the expansion of the previous administration prohibition on investment in 49 Chinese companies also needs to be revisited. While the Biden administration has correctly emphasized working closely with allies, we are going it alone when it comes to delisting and sanctioning Chinese companies. Where are our European partners and allies? If these companies' listings in Hong Kong, London, Singapore, and Tokyo remain unchanged, these actions do not harm them. They do, however, have an impact on people's livelihoods especially here in New York. The second area for action is people to people and academic exchanges. The administration should restore the Peace Corps and Fulbright programs and reverse the executive order that ends congressional staff trips under the Mutual Education and Cultural Exchange Act. The administration should also speed issuance of student visas and restart issuing visas to CCP members and their families. We can facilitate this by allowing the Chinese government to reopen its consulate in Houston as we reopen our consulate in Chengdu. It should also quickly rebuild the CDC and National Science Foundation presence in our Beijing embassy. The administration should also end the restriction on Chinese state media in the United States. This media reports on America to Chinese audiences and does not influence discussions of China in America. Before relaxing this restriction, the administration should secure PRC government agreement to allow American journalists back into China under acceptable working conditions. As for the academic exchanges, Attorney General Garland should end the China initiative. Created by the Trump administration to address a quote, China threat, the initiative at a minimum undermines the Justice Department's own guidelines that prosecutors should not be influenced by a person's race, or national origin. In addition to serious issues of bias, the initiative's chilling effect dissuades top scholars and researchers from coming to and staying in the United States. The weak prosecutions that have thus far resulted from the China Initiative show the costs far exceed the benefit. The third area for actions is on human rights and international norms. Labeling China 
a strategic competitor and focusing on destructive confrontation rather than constructive engagement does not help one citizen in Hong Kong, one Uyghur in Xinjiang, or one dissident in China. While we should continue to vehemently criticize PRC actions and sanction where necessary, a cooperative relationship will allow us to have more influence affecting policies that are inconsistent with our values. Additionally, our criticism of China's violations of international law in the South China Sea would be enhanced by our long overdue ratification of the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea. Fourth, US policy on Taiwan is the root of much of our strategic conflict with China. While the Biden administration has reversed some of the previous administration's actions and Jake Sullivan and Kurt Campbell's reaffirmation of the One China policy has helped the visit to Taiwan by the US ambassador to Palau, meetings of charge d'affaires in Tokyo, two visits by military U.S. military aircraft to Taiwan and failure to return the official contact protocol to the pre-Pompeo era undermine those, those statements. We can and should strengthen our relations with Taiwan without making it more official with the visit to Taipei of Chris Dodd, Jim Steinberg, and Richard Armitage Armitage and negotiating additional trade agreements as great examples. Fifth, the United States should be careful to distinguish between Russia and China. In 2018, then citizen Biden pointed out that a long-term partnership alliance between Moscow and Beijing in the near term isn't in the stars at all. Yet by continuing to pursue policies that group them together as joint threats, the United States is only pushing them closer together. Finally, we should not understate the benefits constructive engagement brought to the American people. I do not agree that the era of constructive engagement was misguided or is over. This view ignores that engagement with China not only improved the lives of the Chinese people, it also helped bind China to the international system, leading to its remarkable economic growth that has directly benefited working Americans. It ignores that China has become the largest contributor to global economic growth. It ignores China's accession to the WTO, UN sanctions on North Korea and Iran, the Iran Accords, the Paris Accords, ending the genocide in Darfur, controlling the Ebola epidemic, leading the global recovery from the 2018 financial crisis, reducing piracy in the Gulf of Aden, and cooperating on joint research by our CDCs in pandemics past. Most importantly, when I first arrived in Asia 50 years ago, we were fighting the last of three wars that led to the deaths of more than 250,000 American soldiers on the battlefields of Asia. Since the era of constructive engagement, not a single soldier has died on those battlefields. In 1953, President Eisenhower gave his chance for peace speech. He warned that every gun that is made, every warship, warship launched, every rocket fired signifies in the final sense a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. We should temper 
what is a normal level of competition with engagement, not exaggerate competition and produce dangerous confrontation. Otherwise, we risk spending hundreds of billions of dollars inflicting enormous human sacrifice and foregoing the chance to pursue economic policies that will better serve the needs of American working family, families. The moment calls for great leadership. If President Nixon had polled whether or not he should go to China, or if President Carter had polled whether or not he should establish diplomatic relations with China, neither would have acted. Now is the time for bold and brave actions. It's late, but it's not too late. Thanks. Well, Steve, that was a uh, terrific speech. Uh, you've made many excellent suggestions. I hope the Biden administration will go through your list very, very carefully. Uh, I certainly agree with uh, most of the recommendations you made. I have a few questions on specifics, but my broadest concern is, can we really carry out a meaningful balanced policy with China? Uh, we need cooperation in many respects. Uh, we should have, as you say, enlightened competition. I was very glad to hear you mention the role of continuing criticism. And I endorse Chinese criticism of the failings in our own society. I don't like what aboutism, as they say, because uh, it loses the focus on what China needs to do. Uh, but we can't be unilateral and ignore our own failings. It's true, China has an easy access to our media. Uh, they have no trouble reading all our great papers uh, and watching our television programs, whereas we have to confront a society that's impenetrable uh, and one that shapes its own people's opinions uh, by often distorting uh, external and even internal reality. And of course, uh, we need, as I think you imply, uh, to keep up what used to be called uh, uh, containment. Uh, deterrence uh, perhaps sounds uh, better and uh, perhaps it's got to be mutual. But can you carry out a balanced policy? Will China cooperate? Uh, on what has to be done on climate or even uh, the restoration of our consulate, et cetera, in China and the access for our media to China again uh, at the same time that we give them well-warranted necessary condemnation uh, for Xinjiang, Tibet, Hong Kong, and repression throughout the country which tends to get overlooked because of our concern for these specific places that you and I have uh, mentioned. And of course, the uh, human rights lawyers and their associated human rights advocates, they're repressed throughout the country. But can we keep up the necessary criticism and even find more effective ways of putting the pressure on for human rights? And at the same time, get the benefits uh, that we all see would come from uh, cooperation. So this is the problem of trying to have a balanced policy. But I agree we shouldn't allow concern for immediate domestic benefit to the Biden administration, despite its precarious position in domestic politics, to overcome our foreign policy needs because as you just ended the talk by rightfully pointing out, the danger is great. We've had bad relations with China under Mao, but Mao couldn't harm us the way Xi Jinping could. And we all fear an accident and a tense environment that could recreate 
the kind of dangerous situation that led to World War I. So these are, these are not uh, simple questions, but let me ask you, with respect to economic matters, I agree we should get rid of these Trump tariffs, but what about delisting of Chinese companies on our stock exchanges that continue to refuse to provide the same accounting data that is expected of all companies that list? Uh, is there an explanation for? Uh, yeah, I, I think insisting yeah. on that. What what's your view on that? Because I'm trying. We're trying to keep the talk into a, a reasonable. It was already very long. Um, there, the delisting, to the extent that a company is not providing um, its investors with access to the books and records that companies normally do, whether it's a Dutch company, a French company, or a Chinese company, they should have a period of time to comply, and then they should be delisted. That's an issue of protecting the investors, and I'm in complete agreement, and we now are going to have a law in place which is going to require that delisting. That is different from delisting for all sorts of other uh, reasons, which we are, which we have been doing. Um, when those delistings occur, and they continue to have to be listed in London or in Hong Kong mostly, or in Singapore or in Tokyo, what we're doing is basically taking the jobs and the fees that were payable to American companies, and we're shipping them outside of the United States. So, I didn't have time in the speech to distinguish between investor protection and delisting for other purposes. So it's the delisting for other purposes where we're not doing anything to protect investors. We're doing, I think what, what the, the Biden folks says, we're protecting our interests and values. Well, yes, but if it's your job that it's lost and you're not harming the company because their listing remains in Hong Kong or they move to Hong Kong or they move to London or they move elsewhere, um, they basically are not suffering anything. The only folks who are suffering are Americans. But the, and so it's a very good question. The, the protecting investors is one thing, which we should do. Uh, harming folks who work in the United States, the NASDAQ and the NYSE um, is not a good policy. Of course, the most dangerous question involves Taiwan. Uh, I agree that some of our demonstrated support for Taiwan under Biden uh, looks increasingly official, governmental, and we have to be careful in hewing to the one China line uh, while still doing many things to support Taiwan. Uh, I would uh, support your admonition about the need for caution. Uh, there's no need to unnecessarily provoke uh, Beijing uh, on this question. On the other hand, there are some things that I don't think Biden has yet done that I have long advocated. I'd love to see, for example, no restrictions on access to American audiences by uh, the leaders of Taiwan. Uh, it would be good if- In, in person or by, by Zoom? Uh, either, but uh, of course, I would prefer in person. I don't know about virus restrictions. I mean, the question you have to ask, Jerry, is the consequence of those actions. If you go back to the Li Dunghui visit, um, you can trace part of China's military modernization to that visit. So was the visit uh, really worth it? It called into question um, America's commitment to a one China policy. We had told the Chinese uh, repeatedly and up till the day, the weekend before Li Danghui came that he would not come. And then the Congress put enormous pressure on President Clinton and he relented, which then led the Chinese to lobbing missiles over Taiwan, which then led our fleet to going um, into the Taiwan Straits. So the question that you need to ask is, is this really doing, is this really a benefit to the people of Taiwan? I would argue 
uh, it's not. That there may be a minor political kind of benefit, but ultimately um, it just will create a situation where the Chinese will be will be viewing the U.S. as in and the Taiwan government as in violation of the basis for the establishment of diplomatic relations, and they it will make it more difficult, not less difficult. Well, of course. Uh, I mean, do you think, I, do you think that Tsai Ing-wen, the call between Trump and Tsai Ing-wen was good, was a good thing? You see, that's a very official arrangement. I'm not suggesting that Tsai be in contact with the president or that her representative have access to the US government officials. Uh, I'm suggesting that the American people, not in Washington, but in Chicago, Boston, New York, California, whatever, uh, be allowed to hear uh, the views in person of Taiwan's leadership. That's got nothing to do with the one China, two China policy. And if Beijing exaggerates uh, its reaction to that and throws a tantrum, well, I think we should tell them to grow up. I understand they get upset at any show of US military contact with Taiwan or sending people who are in the cabinet uh, to Taiwan. Uh, yeah. Giving American people who have a right to free speech and who have to decide presumably or at least tolerate any ultimate decision about whether we go to the defense of Taiwan, no opportunity to hear from the leaders of Taiwan in person. I don't know if you'd make a distinction. I've, at the Council on Foreign Relations, I've interviewed President Ma Ying-jeou, President Chen Shui-bian, Vice President uh, Annette Liu via Zoom. Uh, it isn't as good as in person, but I'd settle for that. What do you think about that? Oh, Zoom, I think is fine. It's no problem. I think for a a sitting Taiwan president to go to Washington, it, it would likely be, be problematic. I mean, I asked the question, when you're a student, when, as you said, you was president of Taiwan, um, we saw Taiwan granted um, representation in the WHO, you know, the World Health Agency, uh, which was really important. I advocate, you know, I believe it's in China's interest actually to give Taiwan access, to allow Taiwan to be part of these international organizations because it's health, it's safety, it's, it's a good thing for China as well as for Taiwan. And during Ma Zhou's period uh, as president, we were moving in that direction. I believe that when the you know, WHA invited Taiwan, that was just the first step. But what happened is, it's all been reversed, that we're not seeing this. So the question you need to ask yourself, which is very tough, and we, we talk about it all the time, is this because of, you know, China is so frustrated that, you know, with these increasing official contact, contacts, with increasing um, violations in their view of the basis for the establishment of diplomatic relations, or is it just China's plan? It's just China's just determined to kind of put a put put Taiwan in a tighter vice. Very hard to answer that question. And if you can answer that question, you then can answer a lot of the questions about what we should and shouldn't do. Well, you and I could go on for a long time, but we only have a limited amount of time today. And I know we have a lot of questions. So I hope Margot will start the question process off and we can most uh, make the most of the remaining hour. Thank you, Jerry. We do indeed have a lot of questions. Let's start with one from Andrew Joe. He asks, what is the US long-term strategic goal? Why did Biden say he will not let China surpass America under his watch? What's driving the fear? Can you talk about yellow peril as one of the main drivers of the US-China relationship?
Yeah, first, the, the administration is still considering you know, its options on China. The review, even though clearly six months has gone by, not almost nine since the uh, election, it's still considering what its ultimate strategy is. Uh, right now, it's, you know, if they look at the long-term goal, it's to see China conform more with international norms and rules, whether it's WTO violations, uh, unfair economic practices, uh, human rights in Xinjiang, living up to the joint declaration uh, on Hong Kong, cross-strait relations. It's very much to have China become much more of the responsible stakeholder that Bob Zelleck talked about now almost 15 years ago, that it is, you know, it has failed that exam and Biden, Blinken and Sullivan's hope is we can see a more uh, cooperative China in terms of the international um, rules and policies. At the same time, you know, I think when he says they're not gonna become a larger economy than the United States, that's very much about domestic political consumption. Um, there is not a ton we can do, the United States can do to either uh, allow or stop China from becoming a larger economy. You know, its population is four and a half times that of the United States, which rate of economic growth is a lot faster. And we don't want to take actions that will derail and destabilize China. That wouldn't be good for American workers. It wouldn't be good for Americans. Of course, it should be possible to reach some kind of modus vivendi in the South China Sea. Uh, as you point out, the US, while insisting that others abide by unclose, hasn't ratified it. Uh, on the other hand, China has openly thumbed its nose at its obligations under unclose. But what we have to see on the horizon now is China is going to want to change the rules by isolating the US and other liberal democracies and outvoting us in the UN, whether in the Human Rights Council or in any other UN forum, and certainly in other international organizations. They're not against international law if they can make sure it conforms to uh, China's needs. So this is going to be quite a challenge. What, what the Biden administration has done well, though, is, is, is re-engaged with these international organizations, re-engaged with these standard-setting bodies that during the previous administration, we saw a withdrawal, not only from the Paris boards and, and, and a lot of other international institutions, but from a lot of these standard settings. And it absolutely is important that we can go in um, and play a major role in setting those standards so that American suppliers, both hardware and software are not um, disadvantaged from rules which they can't uh, comply with. So I had Let's the next question. The next question comes from Laura Lehrman. I hope I've pronounced your name correctly. She's a professor at Wright State University. How do the two of you believe the upcoming transitions in diplomatic representation with a new US ambassador to China and Chinese ambassador to the United States will impact the bilateral relationship. Any ideas on Ambassador Tsui's successor? Tough, two tough jobs. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, the policy towards uh, the United States is not formed in the embassy in Washington and the policy towards China is not formed in the embassy in Beijing, that the, uh, each ambassador needs to articulate, you know, their government's position to uh, the people and the leadership of both countries. In the case of every Chinese ambassador, um, you have to go way, way back. They are extremely well-versed 
in the United States, extremely well-versed in English. They make regular appearances on CNN, on, you know, beat the press, on you name it. And they articulate those views very effectively to the American people. When they talk to the Congress, when they talk to the president, uh, they do it with a real knowledge of uh, the United States and a real fluency in English. Uh, we still haven't seen the Biden appointment. Um, I strongly urge uh, the Biden administration to appoint someone who is completely fluent in Chinese, who knows China, who can speak directly to Xi Jinping, the Chinese media, and the Chinese people in Chinese. It's really important. Those of us who have watched, you know, those of us who built relationships with Chinese over a lifetime, I find it hard to imagine that those relationships could have been built if I didn't speak Chinese. That they have been, it's not, it's not, it's not sufficient, but it is necessary. So it's one of the traits that, that we need. And no matter how great a diplomat the person is, um, it's really important to be able to speak direct in the, the consolidation of power into one person's hand in China. The US ambassador will at times have a unique chance to speak directly to the president, a unique chance to speak to the standing committee, to the Politburo. And it would be really, really, really helpful if uh, he or she spoke Chinese. Uh, has the uh, new ambassador not been announced yet? It's been leaked, but I, I, I'm not aware of it being submitted to the, the administration, to my knowledge, has not submitted it to the Senate. Maybe people on the call could correct me. Um, I mean, Nick Burns has been, and it's no secret, has been um, talked about. Uh, who is a fabulous diplomat. He's a fabulous, fabulous diplomat who speaks many languages, but not Chinese. I noticed that just uh, yesterday they announced uh, three ambassadorships. And uh, I suppose there's a process required, including checking at various sources. But it seems odd that it's taken them so long uh, to name an ambassador to China, although I don't want to exaggerate the importance that an ambassador has in the total policymaking uh, context. But, but it is an important role in speaking to the Chinese people and speaking to the Chinese leadership. Um, you know, I think back to, you know, the way State Peroy had conversations with John Zemeng. Um, the question that I, I don't know if State is on this call, but but uh, did he help form Jiang Zemin's views of the United States? You know, that was, again, a time of, of pretty good U.S.-China relations. Of but course, uh, to use a phrase uh, well-known in American politics, uh, I knew Jiang Zemin, and Xi Jinping is no Jiang Zemin. <laughs> Can we expect the same degree of access for anybody who represents the American point of view uh, with respect to the Chinese audience. It's, it's a interesting, yes. I mean, the days when we were first in China, our ability to go into Zhongnanhai, you know, was, was you know, we used to joke, Bao Chu Hao, you just give them your license plate number and you could go in. It was pretty, it was a pretty relaxed time. You certainly, well, you still have to do it, but you have to have a serious vetting and, and lots of, uh, uh, you have to have an absolute appointment with somebody who, who vouches for you to be able to go in. Um, but the answer is we don't know, but there certainly are moments uh, when the president does, um, the president of China does see uh, the American ambassador, just as there are moments when the Chinese ambassador sees the president of the United States. We saw, you know, Tsui Tiankai interacting with President Trump, uh, President Obama, um, you know, and, and his ability to express himself in absolute perfect English was, um, 
extremely useful if there had been a translator uh, kind of intermediating that, I wonder what the result would be. Margot, go ahead, sorry. We have another diplomacy question actually submitted by two people. So there's considerable interest in this matter. Ma Zhao and Robert Delaney both ask about Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman's visit to China next week. In your view, what could she do? What is on her agenda? Can her visit somehow break the ice with Beijing? Will it move the two sides closer to a Biden-Xi summit, or will it look more like the acrimonious meeting in Anchorage? Wendy is a, well, Tony and Jake are great diplomats, but that, you know, Wendy is the deputy secretary. She is a fabulous professional. She will, she will move the ball towards another meeting between uh, Lincoln and Wang Yi at some point with a view to having um, Biden and Xi meet on the sidelines of the G20 in the autumn. Um, I believe that's what her uh, charge is. Uh, I believe the Chinese want that to happen. I believe we want that to happen. Not having contacts at senior levels is not healthy. Um, it's especially with the deterioration in the relationship. I, you know, I think because she will be in Beijing, um, she obviously will be covered by knew she won't have to make the same uh, kinds of statements that, that um, Secretary Blinken and National Security Advisor Sullivan had to make. And to some degree, they had to kind of clear the table. They had to set the stage for having serious negotiations on economic issues, on, on climate change, on uh, Taiwan, on um, you know, the human rights issues, you know, where in a quiet atmosphere in Tianjin, they may be able to maybe, may be able to make more progress. Sometimes Foreign Minister Wang Yi loses his temper in public as he did in Canada. And I'm wondering whether we can expect uh, him to show any wolf warrior diplomacy or whether uh, the very able and calm Ambassador Tsui's successor uh, is expected to be a wolf warrior. I think to some degree it's going to depend on, on uh, what we do and to some degree, you know, the wolf warrior uh, diplomacy plays well to their, to the Chinese domestic audience. That it seems to me that when I'm talking to professionals in diplomacy, uh, they are disturbed by the success of the wolf warrior diplomats and they're disturbed at the support that they get in the Chinese population. But, you know, the, the demonization of China um, in the U.S. political environment is strengthening those in China who support the wolf warriors, that the folks who are our friends the folks who believe in economic reform, the folks, many of the folks who were schooled in graduate school in the United States um, are being undermined by the approaches that we've taken. Now, having said that, the Biden administration is a ton better than the previous administration. You know, we're not calling it the China virus, the Wuhan virus. We're saying we need an investigation of, of origins and stuff. Now, again, that's a great example of if we had a, a relationship that was focused much more on cooperation, would there be such a harsh standoff in terms of scientific cooperation? I spent uh, Tuesday morning and Wednesday night uh, on six hours of Zoom with senior people in the Chinese medical establishment and senior people in the American medical establishment, including two former FDA heads and, and many others. And what was clear in these discussions uh, on, from both sides is they want the scientific cooperation to be 
to be not political and they want it to increase. They wanna help you know, deal with COVID. They wanna help cure cancer. They wanna help deal with diabetes. They wanna deal with cardiovascular issues that affect Chinese and Americans. That they wanna do this together. There's this overwhelming desire of experts, not politicians on both sides to work together. And that was the overwhelming feeling I got from these six hours of Zoom. The same could be said, of course, with respect to legal experts. Uh, there are, even in the Chinese security ministries, people who would like to enhance legal protections. Uh, and certainly uh, in the court system and in the Ministry of Justice, and yet they are all restricted by the dominant party policy that uh, law has to be the servant of the party. And we would love to continue this cooperation and some cooperation continues, but there's always politics just as China today accuses us of having politics corrupt our science. And we think of course, politics has corrupted their science. So we have to struggle with these problems on both sides, but you're quite right. We've got to work harder to maintain and expand our cooperation in many professional fields. Yeah. And we got to rebuild, we need to rebuild the embassy. You know, the, the CDC, as I said in the speech, the CDC and the National Science Foundation representation in Beijing was, if my numbers are right, reduced from 41 to 14. Um, and that needs to be rebuilt because that's part of our scientific cooperation. Margot, I see Ira has a question and, and, and it, apparently I wasn't clear in something. Can you ask Ira's question? Ira, I am you. happy to ask Ira's question. We are running close to our time though. So I hope that you will answer succinctly so we can fit in more questions. There are a whole bunch of really good questions. So here's from Ira. Steve, if we take your recommended steps unilaterally, you mentioned reciprocity in a couple of instances, but seem to indicate that these are all steps the US should take. Won't that diminish our leverage? And with the current mood in the US, wouldn't a perception of being quote unquote soft on China hurt Biden's ability to push his domestic agenda? Yeah, on the unilateral, yes, and, and Ira, you're right. And it's on the tariffs, uh, what I say is, is we need to just negotiate back to the status quo ante, so back to December of 2016, not just reduce all of ours, say, all right, the Chinese will reduce all of theirs, but that's actually, uh, it, I mean, it's easy for me to say, I'm not Catherine Tai, that's actually quite easily done. Um, you know, we, we can benchmark that to a time and it immediately is a tax cut for working families. Uh, so I think that should be done, uh, not unilaterally, but quickly on a bilateral basis. The journalists, similarly, we should not uh, relax the restrictions on state media in the United States until China agrees to uh, re-invite American journalists back under acceptable conditions. But these are things I've talked about with the Chinese and they're, they're willing, they have said, again, this was now early in the administration, the Chinese have said they're willing to do that. And these are things that are, are really good uh, for American people. We have two questions related to human rights. Miling Sui of Human Rights in China asks, in your view, how should the Biden administration engage China on the issue of China's actions in Xinjiang and what policy should it pursue? Andrew Collier in a related question says, how much of a role should Hong Kong play in US-China relations? Is it a political football, a sideshow or a key issue? You wanna take Xinjiang, Jerry, you're... Well, the frustration we have, of course, uh, is that there seems to be very little uh, that can be done because China is so insistent on pursuing its policy. And although they are aware that 
their soft power abroad is suffering and that world public opinion, at least in the liberal world, is turning against them. Uh, their domestic needs, having decided to change from the original communist policy of cultivating uh, the ethnic minorities, now they want to use forcible assimilation. And I think uh, we have to keep up the drumbeat of criticism. We have to try to mobilize uh, international organizations and foreign governments uh, increasingly to condemn what's being done. Uh, and that is gradually happening. It's raising the cost to China. But I don't see an end to the policy uh, until Xi Jinping is no longer in power, uh, unless he suffers some radical change. And I don't see that happening. He doesn't have what Deng Xiaoping had, which is the appreciation of the desirability of working out compromises uh, with the world on foreign policy matters. She is always emphasizing there can be no compromise. Uh, China must achieve what he deems to be its sovereign rights. So we're facing a very depressing situation. I wish the Muslim world uh, would uh, escape from under the PRC's influence and denounce what's happening uh, to their brethren uh, in China. And perhaps uh, this gradually will change, but I don't see uh, much optimism in, in immediate sight. I think we continue the criticism. We, we have to continue the criticism. But I, I like Jerry, I'm not optimistic that we're going to see change. And I'm not optimistic we're going to you know, for a time, I was hopeful that that in, in Hong Kong, they would put the Chinese government would put in place these laws and kind of have very gentle enforcement. That is clearly not the case. Um, and I'm not, you know, they made a decision after in the you know, summer before last that they this was a threat to, to Beijing and they were going to crack down hard and, and they have and they put in place process and plan that is, is uh, in the end, not good for Hong Kong, not good for the people of Hong Kong, and in the end, not good for China either. Uh, but that's not a view that people in the leadership accept or are even willing to express. I see every day new repressive actions in Hong Kong. And what I worry about now is on August 1st, uh, the Hong Kong government will have the power to uh, restrict exit by anyone in Hong Kong, foreign or local person. And uh, I wonder how long they will refrain from exercising that. It will be hideously embarrassing if hundreds of thousands of people uh, leave Hong Kong uh, and the mainland hasn't tolerated that among the mainland residents and citizens. And it would be, I think, embarrassing. So I worry about exit control as the next area for uh, monopolization of power by Beijing. Exit controls? Oof. Wow. Somebody who's not indicted, just don't let them leave? <laughs> I, I, boy, that would be a, a serious deterioration. That, that would, people would start running for the exits before that went into effect. <laughs> Margo, go ahead, next question. Okay, I think this will probably be our last and it comes from Mike Lampton, who's at SICE. Would Professor Cohen agree that overall engagement with China over the last four plus decades has been a very large net plus for human rights, almost no matter how calculated. Would he agree that the issue now is not so much the past engagement policy as what to do in light of changed circumstances? Absolutely. Anybody who recalls what China was like when it first opened up to us in 1972, 73, knows what a low base that is for measuring human rights progress. 
uh, after the Cultural Revolution, which was still going on then, they had nowhere to go but up. And there has been enormous progress in China through the efforts of the Chinese people, especially after communist repression was lightened up with the Deng Xiaoping era. Uh, so people's lives are better. Uh, of course, uh, we see some severe restrictions on political and civil rights, uh, but there's no doubt uh, people are better off economically and socially in terms of their life prospects pretty generally, although there are still areas and people in China who haven't benefited. But it's these restrictions uh, of a political nature that are obviously reaching the younger generation in China now. Uh, at the so-called lying down movement, uh, the frustration over careers, uh, the uh, inability of people, the unwillingness to reproduce enough to solve the population problem, dissatisfaction with the vast pollution problems China has. Uh, there are many reasons for dissatisfaction. If people were more satisfied, you wouldn't have this horrendous repression that denies people the freedom to express their complaints about the government. If the government were really confident about the future, and Mike is right, we have to be concentrating on the future, they wouldn't take these extreme measures to stifle any adverse comment. One more question. If for the moment we say that a new Cold War with China is brewing or has perhaps already started, do you see a growing coalition of people opposed to focusing on confrontation rather than on competition or on constructive engagement. Does constructive engagement include competition? Yeah, constructive engagement includes competition, absolutely includes competition. I always think of what Harry Harding used to say, which was, you know, economic competition, fine. Uh, diplomatic competition, no problem. We have that with the Brits, with the French, with the Italians, with the Japanese. Strategic competition, bad, because it leads to, to budget allocations that are seriously impact domestic priorities. I see a growing coalition in opposition to this, this policy. I see it from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, Senator Sanders had a piece in Foreign Affairs uh, last month which talked about his opposition to the growing uh, Cold War. We saw 40 environmental NGOs uh, who talked about the existential threat of climate change. And you know we may not like it. We certainly object to China's human rights policies. But if it's existential, we need to find uh, a way to work with the Chinese. I see it in some members of the House, especially the progressive wing of the Democratic House members who are also beginning to object because they, they not only see climate change as an existential threat, they see kind of what I, the, the reference I made to the Eisenhower uh, quote, uh, where if we have this Cold War with China, we ain't gonna be able to spend money on poverty alleviation in the United States, on social programs, on education, because it's all gonna have to go to the impending military conflict, uh, confrontation with China. So there is a building coalition, and there's of course many China scholars who are in opposition to this growing Cold War and believe we need to temper uh, our words, temper, when we talk about confrontation, uh, to talk more about cooperation. So yes, there, there is a, a growing coalition. Um, so my speech, I think, I hope, uh, gets traction with some. Uh, I'm certain it will get traction with progressives in the Democratic Party. Jerry, do you have any last thoughts you would like to share? Well, Congress is the battleground now, of course, not only with respect to China. Uh, the first draft of Eisenhower's famous 
uh, warning about the military industrial complex referred to the congressional military industrial com complex. And then he was advised it's better not to uh, hit Congress between the eyes, but Congress is still the battleground and it reflects the American people. And we're divided on so many questions, domestic as well as international. It requires ever greater effort on our part and the kind of talk Steve gave us today to try to improve the level of American education and increase the pressure on Congress so that we will have a less provocative but more cooperative and yet uh, an equally deterring policy against uh, further Chinese encroachments, even though it's very difficult to do much more than is being done to condemn the human rights violations. Thanks, this was a good program, I thought. Thanks, Margo and Steve, and to your group for putting it on. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks to Jerry, thanks to Steve. Thank you very much to our audience for joining us. And thank you for the National Committee team behind the scenes who did everything that actually made it come off. Thank you and enjoy the rest of the day or night or whatever time zone you are in. Bye-bye. Bye. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.